Amen. Uh, if you'd open your Bibles to Matthew 24, we are in um, a somewhat of a six-part series. This is the fourth of six about the end times, about um, some confusing but also very uh, thought-provoking uh, teaching that Jesus does um, in an extended way over Matthew 24 and 25. So we're going to read uh, the end of 24 into 25. It's a big chunk, but we'll bring it all together. Um, and the next three sermons really go together, um, and so it's important for you to hear all three. Uh, they'll be online. The old ones are online as well. And again, it, hopefully it will give you some thought-provoking stuff that maybe you have not thought about um, and, and we ought to think about. So Matthew 24, if you read with me, verse 36 says this, But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. As were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark, and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. And two men will be in the field, one will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken and one left. Therefore stay awake, for you do not know what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake. and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over the household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that wicked servant says to himself, my master is delayed, and he begins to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him, and an hour he does not know, and will cut him in pieces and put him, in, put him with the hypocrites in that place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins, who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them, but the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight there was a cry, Here's the bridegroom! Come out to meet him! Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps, and the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil. For our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, Since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to marriage feast, and the virgins marriage feast, and the door was shut. And afterward the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Watch therefore, for you neither know. No, neither the day nor the hour. This is God's Word. And a disturbing one it is. Um, the next couple of weeks, uh, these two parables, are, I think, are going to be very challenging. And they're challenging for this reason. The time that Jesus is describing is the time that we are in. Between His ascension to heaven and His second coming. He's describing how we ought to perceive, how we ought to live during that time. And many of us um, are either failing or succeeding in that. Perhaps we're all failing at some level. And so I found this parable and, and, and this passage very convicting. 
Just for context, since the beginning of chapter 24, Jesus has been answering two questions. When will the temple be destroyed? And when will the world come to an end? And so he's already answered the first question of when the temple would be destroyed. And as we moved into the second half here of chapter 24 and into 25, Jesus is now answering the second question that was asked at the beginning of 24, which is, when will be the end of the age? When will the world come to an end? And Jesus is saying basically the end of the world, the end of the age as we know it, will commence or come to an end with the coming of the Son of Man. When Jesus returns... And the coming, the word for coming that is used initially, we saw it used in chapter 24, verse 30, was talking about the coming of the Son of Man on the clouds. We talked about how that was the destruction. That is a different Greek word than the word that we see now used in verse 39 and then following for coming, which is parousia, or parousia, how people pronounce it differently in different ways. But that is the second coming that Jesus is referring to as his literal return to the earth. Now, at his return, we see this second half into 25, um, that he will return and he will finally judge the world and he will fully restore the heavens and the earth as he had planned. Now, unlike the destruction of the temple, which he's been talking about, saying, This is going to happen. This is going to happen. Get ready. The temple is going to be destroyed. Here are the events that lead up to it. Um, Jesus had said many times that this will happen in this generation. And we know that a generation generally is 30 to 50 years. So he's saying, look, this is going to happen in this generation. Expect it. Calendar it. It's going to occur. Um, But he says about his second coming now. That's what he says. But concerning that day, the day of his coming... No one knows. So no one knows. Uh, the angels don't know. Uh, the Son doesn't know. Only the Father in heaven knows. Which begs the question, why so many Christians, some probably certainly are, but others are pretenders, why so many Christians try to figure out the day? Um, Jesus said, you ain't going to know. And yet we have many people, some cults, some well-meaning Christians, have taken their shot at it. Uh, The Jehovah Witnesses have taken their shot seven different times uh, and have been wrong. Uh, The Seventh-day Adventists, who became the Seventh-day Adventists, gave their shot at it and they were wrong. Uh, Hal Lindsey, wrong. Pat Robertson, God bless him, wrong. Um, Harold Camping, which you may have heard of Harold Camping. Harold Camping was a really old guy had a radio show. I think he's passed since then, but he predicted it probably, oh, I don't know, a bunch of different times. Uh, even Louis Farrakhan gave his shot at when the world was going to end. And you can look it up. There's all kinds of different people who have said, this is how it's going to come to pass. This is what's going to happen. And Jesus said, no one's going to know. Stop trying. What he did say is like, look, you're not going to know something, but you're going to know something. You're not going to know when, but you are going to know that. You're not going to know when I'm coming, but that I'm coming is something you should be assured of, something you should be certain of, something that you should expect. Now, as Jesus goes on, he begins to compare the day of his coming to the days of Noah. And we're probably familiar somewhat with the days of Noah. You can read in Genesis, beginning of Genesis 6, 6, the story of 
Noah, but if you look in Genesis 6, you'll see a description of the world. It says this, the earth at the time of Noah was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. It was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. Now, I don't know if you were an alien from another planet and you came down and saw the earth and you just turned on the news or Google and started looking at what was going on. I wonder if you would describe the earth as corrupt, as full of violence, and just kind of overall messed up. It seems like a pretty good description. I think that description describes us from Noah on. I'm not sure there was ever a time that got better, but the world is definitely corrupt, definitely broken, definitely full of violence as it was in the time of Noah. And at the time of Noah, as a divine act of global judgment, symbolized by the rainbow, right? If you were at the Snohomish uh, parade yesterday, you saw a rainbow float thingy. You can imagine what it was supporting, which is uh, tragically ironic because the icon that God used to symbolize his promise was, I promise not to kill everybody with water again because of your sin. Implying that he could, you'll probably deserve it, but I'm never going to do that again. It'll be by fire later. But not by water, right? So it's interesting, the irony of that, but it was so messed up that he came and he said, I'm going to wipe it clean, and he wipes it clean with a global worldwide flood. Now, so Jesus, as God warned Noah, he's warning his disciples. He's warning us. Just as he, Noah was the only one that was warned. Okay? And like Noah, in Noah's time, there's going to be no warning to the world except that which comes from those who have been warned by God. There's no warning. There's no, like, the destruction of the temple. Oh, this sign, this sign, this sign, this sign. Then the temple will be destroyed. It's like... It's just going to come. No warning. And until that time, life will continue. It will continue as usual, eating, drinking, and people getting married. Or maybe better said, it will continue with the abuse of eating, the abuse of drinking, and the abuse we're seeing very obviously of marriage. That will go on. People get married. People get divorced. People will eat. People get drunk. People get fat. Everything, right? It's going to happen. It will continue. And then, boom, Jesus. Like Noah, there will be a very swift and powerful and comprehensive judgment. People will not be wondering, is this judgment? Uh, During the time of Noah, when the waters were covering them and they were drowning, they figured out real quick it was judgment. There were no boats, a couple logs maybe, but after that, everyone's dead. Okay, Like Noah, there will be a very decisive division. Of people. What do I mean? I mean that there was Noah and his family, they were alive, and then there was everybody else, they were dead. Okay? There were those who were saved and those who were uns- and there was no confusion about who was who. Unlike the Noah movie that came out, there are no stowaways on the ark, right? There were those who were God's people and those who were not God's people. Very clear. And that's why you have a verse in verse 40 and 41, which has just been brutalized by um, some of the eschatological positions out there. It says, then two men will be in the field. One will be taken, one will be left. Two, men, or two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken, 
one will be left. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know what day the Lord is coming. That's not talking about the rapture. That's not talking about you know people grinding at the mill and then... It's talking about the division of people. People are going to look the same. They're going to be doing the same things. And there's going to be a clear distinction that you're with God, you're not. Okay? We don't make that determination. God does. But it will be very, very clear. And then finally, like Noah, there's going to be a long wait. Noah was given the warning, the flood's going to come. It didn't come the next day. In fact, it took a minimum of about 75 years for it to come. It took him a while to build the boat. But we don't even know exactly right, how long that was, but it was a long time period. By the way, Noah, I'm going to wipe the earth clean and everything's going to die. Really? Yes, it's going to rain. What's rain? You'll find out. Flooding, rain, right? What's going to happen 75 years later? He didn't tell him that. And you can imagine Noah, like, you know, he's building uncertain, but certain that it was going to happen. The destruction of the temple was the beginning of the countdown for the end of the world. How long that is? We're not sure. Jesus says in Luke 21 that the second coming will commence when, quote, the time of the Gentiles is fulfilled. Well, that's pretty general. Yes, it is. The time of the Gentiles is clearly not fulfilled, but clearly the Gentiles are ruling the world. The Gentiles are filling the world with violence, and it's corrupt, and God is waiting. He is waiting. Jesus says, as you wait, you are to stay awake. You are to be ready. You are to be watchful. And the implication is, you ever ask like, why does Jesus have to tell his disciples to stay awake? Why does he have to tell us to stay awake? Why does he have to tell his disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane where he's about to be arrested, betrayed? Guys, just stay awake, okay? We're praying. And it's because disciples have a tendency to fall asleep. Like, when Jesus warns you to do something, it's because you're probably going to do it. You're going to be tempted to do it. Jesus say, look, stay awake. Be ready. Right? Noah, be ready. Everyone else can be sleeping. Everyone else cannot be ready, but you don't have an excuse. Why? Because I've told you. So none of us in here have an excuse. No one who's read Matthew 24 and 25 has an excuse. Jesus is coming, He says. You don't know when, but it is. And so, what that implies again is that we as God's people, who Jesus is talking to for the time period between His ascension and the second coming, which is now, we should be thinking about His return often. But I would suggest or perhaps wonder if we ever think about Jesus' return. Unless you're coming to church and listening to sermons from Matthew 24-25 or reading the book of Revelation, I'm not sure often we think about Jesus returning. We talk about Jesus returning. I've been ending a lot of my prayers lately, not because of the corruption I see in the world, it's always been there, but because i just compelled and desiring for Jesus to return. Come on, Jesus, right now. It would be awesome, right? Wouldn't it be rad? Like, Jesus is going to return, boom, told you. That would be rad. But expecting it, wanting it, thinking about it. And how much would the return of Jesus begin to change our perspective of our present circumstances? 
and even of our future hopes. We should be thinking about a return. The last words of the book of Revelation, which if you ever get to the end, we don't often, we still, I don't know, bulls, plagues, I can't handle it. Close it up. Too confusing. Skip to the end. Last two verses say this. These are the last words of the last apostle who lived. John. Quoting Jesus, Jesus says, Revelation 22.20, He who testifies these things. Now, he just gave him a whole revelation. Says, he who testifies these things says, the last words of Jesus, I'm coming soon. And what does John say? Amen. Come, Jesus. How often are we praying, all right, Jesus, please come. Are we praying at dinner? Thank you for this food. Please return, Jesus. And what if we began, what if that became part of, of just our way of living and way of hoping of like, Jesus is going to return, Jesus is going to return, Jesus is going to return. Two things, Jesus on his throne, he's coming back. Jesus on a throne, he's coming back. I think it would change everything. But what is disturbing to us or what's going to be disturbing to us is that Jesus is going to say in the next two parables that there's a right and a wrong way to wait. And I know when we begin to talk about what we do, many of us start to cringe a little bit. Okay, I don't want to talk about that. And so I'll just caveat say that we are saved by grace through faith. Now let's see what Jesus says. Because he does say there's a right and a wrong way to wait. We can either waste our time during this time we're waiting for his return, or we can be very watchful in our time. Before Jesus gives a, a very vivid parable, which he's going to do to talk about the same thing, that's why I read so much, he gives a very simple word picture comparing two different servants who are waiting for their master's return. And in the context of the second coming, we understand what's going on. He's talking about us, those who know that their master is returning. Jesus is returning. And so, how are we waiting for that? Because he actually is talking about one servant and the way that this one servant can wait. It can either be a good way or a bad way. One servant, or one perspective of the servant, is wise and responsible and blessed. And the other servant is foolish and irresponsible and wicked. One servant lives his life expecting the master to return at any moment. Not in fear, but it certainly is a, a motivation of some kind. The other lives expecting him to take longer. Ah, he's not going to come. Not going to be, it's going to be a little bit longer. So it's just two very different ways of waiting. One is, he could come any moment. The other is, he ain't coming. Not for a while. I have some time. These are two very different ways of wakefulness. And what we see is that being ready, whatever that means, being watchful, is not just passively sitting and waiting for Jesus' return. That's not what the faithful servant does. You can just sit and go, I know he's coming. I mean, I know he's coming. I'll just sit and wait for him. 
The faithful servant is described not as one who wastes their time, not as one who wastes their talent or their treasure, but one who is responsible, who is actually active. We see that being ready is not, um, as this wicked servant does, actively hurting and exploiting fellow workers. I really think this is talking about an antagonism towards the church. You'll see why I mean that later. But you see that the servant actually beats on his fellow servants. He spends time beating up the people of God that are all under this master. And not only that, he ends up indulging in pleasure and ultimately loving the world. Oh, he's not coming. I can go uh, get hammered and, and enjoy the world of pleasure. If we were to just take Jesus' words at face value, what we see is that being ready has something to do with being active, responsible, and faithful in caring for the household He's given us. And we all have been entrusted with a, a different household, all of which is God's. And we'll see that again next week. You have obviously your own life and your own job, but you have your own family of which you've been called to shepherd and take care of and steward. You have this greater family, right? These people are becoming members of a family. They're investing, saying, I'm committed to you, and, and you are committed to me, and I'm going to serve you, and you're going to serve me, and I'm going to humble myself before you, and you're going to humble yourself before me, and I'm going to confess to you, and you confess to me. Like we, we take responsibility for one another. That's what being a member is. We are a family of families people of God, the household, the Bible says, of God. So we have responsibilities. And so the active and the responsible and the faithful are caring for that household that's been entrusted to your care. And we see that there is a reward for faithfulness. We see the faithful is set over all his possessions. And then we see that there is a punishment for unfaithfulness. The guy is... Like, Jesus isn't this harsh. They will cut him in pieces. Put him with the hypocrites in hell, basically. And we know hypocrites has been used more uh, time and time again to describe religious people. By religious people, I mean those people who make a false profession of belief that actually have never experienced the grace of Christ. So that's what you're talking about, which will make sense as we go. But you need to understand that the wicked servants here are are punished not for what they haven't done. They're they're punished for not really doing what their professed position demanded. What they said they were. Who they said they are. But they're not living who they said they were or professed to be. So then Jesus gives this little snapshot and He goes, okay, let me tell you a story to explain this. A bigger story. This is where His parables come from. And it's a parable about ten virgins or ten single ladies because that virgins isn't really uh, common to us. But single ladies, bridesmaids, um, and they are, uh, there's ten of them and they are um, at this wedding feast. And this wedding feast or preparing for a wedding feast would have been a very familiar image to the people of this time. And again, Jesus, as He's done with most of His parables in Matthew, He is using it as a description of the kingdom of heaven. 
And according to verse 2, we see that these ten, which is really the number of um, divine order, right? Ten commandments, ten plagues, like complete, given a complete picture of the kingdom. Within this kingdom, there are five bridesmaids, virgins, single ladies who are foolish, Jesus says, and five who are wise. That's important. Foolish and wisdom in a biblical sense, not just those who figured it out and those who didn't. Okay, that's not biblical foolishness and wisdom, and we'll, we'll I'll explain that in a second. So you have this wedding, and it's customary uh, at this time for, uh, which is somewhat customary today, where we have bridesmaids at weddings, and they had a little bit of a different function uh, back in uh, these ancient times, uh, but they had about tens bridesmaids, um, and they would take uh, lamps with them, and sometimes they were these pottery-like lamp things that they would fill with oil, and sometimes they were more like torches, um, and they would um, spend their time with her. They would spend the time with the bride and, and be loving the bride and caring for the bride, preparing to meet the groom who would uh, come. And the groomsmen would typically call, and they would come and say, hey, the groom is ready, uh, bring her to the feast. And so the bridesmaids would light their lamps, um, and they would uh, escort her, like the little entourage, right? They would escort her to the uh, bridegroom's or the parent's house where they would have the actual wedding. Now, they would carry these torches with them, and they would only burn for a short amount of time, so they would have to have an extra supply of oil so that they could continue to uh, burn the lamps and light the way as they were going. And the bridesmaids had a very important job uh, to play um, because they were taking care of the bride in preparation while the groom was not there. And it was an appointed role. It was, a, it was an important role. It was an um, honor to, to be a, a bridesmaid because they loved the bride and they loved the groom and they spoke highly of both of them and they looked forward to participating in this union when the bride would meet the groom. Okay? Now, for purposes of time, I'll, say, I'll tell you this. I believe that, that what this group of bridesmaids represents is the church. The visible church. And I say visible church to distinguish that from the invisible church. So the visible church is what we have here. The gathering of the church. The church we can see. It's gathered in different places. And, and it's been gathered over different generations. But what we tangibly see. And then there's the invisible church that only God sees. And the invisible church are basically the true church. The church that are God's people saved by grace and only God knows. Implying that the visible church is full of both believers and non-believers. That we can't necessarily tell we can measure fruit and kind of guess in many ways. But we see that just because someone says they love Jesus doesn't truly mean they've been saved by Jesus. What we see in these ten bridesmaids is those who appear to be in the kingdom of God as they profess to love Jesus, speak highly of Jesus, and talk even about Jesus returning. But Jesus said, within this group of bridesmaids who all the same dresses on, all look the same, all been dolled up and look pretty, all excited. I know I'm making fun of bridesmaids, sorry. But within this group of ten, five are prepared and five aren't. Jesus says that. 
They look the same, they talk the same, they act the same, but they and they've all even responded to the same invitation. But they're very different. Jesus says five are wise and five are foolish. As I said, the Old Testament folly or foolishness is the opposite of wisdom. And a fool is the opposite of a wise person. And wise and, and fool, like those two distinctions are not based necessarily on particular decisions. Though you could say this is a foolish decision, that's a wise decision. It's more based on a, a way of living and an entire perspective on life. A godly person chooses wisdom, whereas an ungodly pursues folly. Proverbs 1.7 makes it very clear what really is the issue and the determiner of what someone is wise or foolish. It says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. As many translations will say wisdom. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. What you're talking about is those who are wise fear the Lord. Those who are wise are submitted to the Lord's lordship. And those who are foolish do not fear the Lord regardless of what they say. And even if they profess to believe, they are under the lordship of someone or something else that is not God. It is a God, but it's not God. That's the distinction. And the difficulty in what Jesus is trying to sell disciples is like, you often can't tell the difference on the surface. But the foolish person is he who does not fear God. And so as this group of ten is waiting, the groom is delayed. So Jesus again is saying there's going to be a delay. And as it's been 2,000 years since Jesus spoke, I would say that qualifies as a delay. Okay. Many people become anxious and tempted to say he's not returning. Jesus isn't who He said He was. Or they say, oh, He is returning. Or He has returned, which many have said. Peter warned people. This is it. Like The Bible warns you about this. He warned people about those who scoff at believers for waiting for something that's taking so long in the eyes of men. And I say in the eyes of men because 2,000 years in the eyes of God is nothing. Let me prove it to you. When you're with Jesus for 70 million years, you're going to look at 2,000 years like blip. Remember that time we were waiting for Jesus? No, I don't, because I've been with Jesus for 70 million years now. That seems like nothing. That's like asking you, what did you eat for breakfast back in 1977? I don't know. Exactly. We're so fleshly. We have our eyes always on now. And never on then. Peter said in 2 Peter 3, Do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that the Lord, for with the Lord one day is as a thousand years. And a thousand years as one day. Think about that. God's like, I can wait five days. Five thousand years. Right? For God, it's like five days. If I told you Jesus would come back in five days, you'd be like, no problem. Continues, the Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Verse 10, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief, 
Same language Jesus used. The day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar. Then the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. I don't know when, but I know that the day is coming. And the question for all of us is, how are we waiting? How are we waiting? That we are waiting is obvious. How we are waiting is the question. And I think one for us to ask ourselves. Not to ask about other people. Paul's honestly, examine yourself. Examine yourself. So examine your waiting. These virgins in uh, the wait, in the delay, all ten fall asleep. Okay, so it's not a sin to fall asleep. Except in church. It's not a sin to fall asleep. He doesn't condemn sleeping. But as they're sleeping, the call comes, groomsmen come and say, the groom's ready. Let's do this. It's when they least expect it because they were taking a little nap. But Jesus had warned time and time again that's how it's going to happen. It's gonna, he's going to come like a thief in the night. Not implying that He's breaking into His own world that He created, but the idea, you don't expect that. It's impossible to stay up all night waiting for the thief, but it's not impossible to be prepared for when the thief comes. Like, I pray to God that I never get broken into in my house, although I've been broken in my car many times. And we'll be prepared. Oh, what's that at the door? It might be a thief. Good thing I'm ready. Right? Actually, I don't have a gun, but I got a big old stick and sword underneath my bed. This isn't a, it'll do. It's not a matter of, of getting caught sleeping. As much it's a matter of being prepared when you're awakened. Okay? Are you prepared when you are awakened? I mean, think about that. If if you knew, we, we ask this about our death. We often ask this question at funerals. But if you knew that Jesus was going to return tomorrow or this afternoon, like how would that impact your life? And for some of us, we'd be like, oh, praise God, I don't have to do XYZ, right? Like, I'm so glad I don't have to go to work in the morning. Everything's like, I'm going to go charge it up, right? I'm going to go enjoy because he's coming. Others would be go, ooh, I better get my house clean. I better get some stuff in order. I better not do X, Y, Z. If thinking about Christ's imminent return has that kind of impact on you, you're not prepared. Now that might just be your disbelief of the Gospel and understanding that, you know what? You are saved by grace and you've been trying to do all these works. and you like, There's lots of ways to, to look at it. But the idea of Jesus returning, that like, it's going to happen tomorrow, if you start going, man, I need to live differently starting now, you've got a problem already. Even if we don't know when He's coming, that He's coming, does that change how you anticipate? Do you have something to fear or be ashamed of? And what I mean is if, if you really view all that you have as God's stuff, how are you taking care of his stuff? I borrowed a guy's tile saw 
last couple of days. I'm tiling my floor. And if you ever use a tile saw, it just looks like a mess when you're done with it. Just dust destroyed everywhere. And I'm about to go on vacation, and I looked at the saw last night and went, hmm, I should probably wash that. And if the owner of that saw came and got it today, I'd washed it. But if I hadn't, I'd be embarrassed. He wouldn't hate me. He'd just be like, huh, that's how you take care of my stuff, huh? Yeah, sorry. Or you return someone's car to them, like just kind of bashed in, no gas, you know, that kind of thing. Like, how are you doing with God's stuff? It maybe was a better question. You have something to be ashamed of? Husbands, how are you taking care of your bride? Wives, how are you taking care of your husband? Parenting, you like go all, it, money, it extends to so many things. You go like, well, if it's God's, how, how are you doing with His stuff? First John um, is the kind of book you should read uh, if you want to know if you're a Christian. It's the most convicting book. But it says this, And now little children abide in Him, Jesus, so that when He appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from Him in shame at His coming. See, to abide in Jesus is actually to live in and for Jesus. Always. It means to be held and kept and continually in the grace of Jesus. Every situation, every circumstance, every decision, beyond Sunday morning, beyond your little devotional time, in every aspect of your life, kept by grace of Jesus. See, to carve up your life into little pieces where you say, well, this is Jesus' part, and then this is where I live kind of my life, is not abiding in Him. Jesus makes it really clear in these parables, which is convicting and challenging and sobering, that there's an all-in and there's a not-in, and there's no in-between. The middle ground where people try to live is where Jesus basically gets sometimes most things. Maybe even everything but our hearts. And when you're giving God a lot of your stuff but not your heart, that's called religion. And the reason you're doing that is because you fear the punishment of the Master when He returns. I don't want us to be motivated by fear. The Master's returning, and this is the Master who died on the cross for our sins, gave everything He had for us to love us and forgive us. And so, we still work, but we just don't work out of fear. Because punishment, as 1 John also says, has been removed when you have that kind of love. And so, our work is now, doesn't, it's not non-existence, it's there with a totally different motivation. Before, I was motivated to work out of fear. I don't want to be spanked by the Master. Now, I work out of delight, out of joy. I don't shriek in, uh, shrink in shame when Jesus comes. I think, oh, yeah, I'm getting some real loving now. It is a completely different motivation, but it is work. The foolish bridesmaids here are not prepared. They had, at some level, a passion for the position they held, but they didn't have the a passion, if you will, to fulfill what the position 
expected. To live in the light and to bring the light and to lead with the light. And so they asked for oil. Like, the groom's here! Hey, hey, hey! Uh, can you give us some of your oil? Because we're all out. We didn't, we didn't even think about this. I, I'm unprepared. And they say, no. You can't, you can't have my oil. Not because I'm mean, but because it's not enough. One, one person cannot be saved by another's faith. You can't appeal to the faith of your parents. Oh yeah, my dad was a pastor. and Oh, they, they were just great, blah, blah, blah. Doesn't matter. You can't appeal to uh, the faith of your wife or the faith of your husband or the faith of your children. You can't piggyback on someone else's obedience. You can't rely on someone else's gifts. You can't take even solace in being part of a church that's just awesome. You can't do any of those things and neglect your own call to live for Jesus. You cannot be saved by the grace of Jesus and someone else. Period. You can't. And so they run off to get more oil. They're like, you go buy some more oil. They're like, okay. And they run off to get some more oil. They didn't have any packed away. They never had it. We understand they never had enough oil. They never had the oil that they needed. Despite the appearances, they never intentionally planned for the return of the groom. They wasted their time. And like many of us, let's be honest, they assumed they'd have more time. Another day to prepare. Another day to repent. Another day to forgive. I mean, I, I have tomorrow to give to Jesus, but today is for me. And I know we don't say that, but we live that. And I am just as guilty. At the heart of that is a religious laziness where we're excited that, oh, I've been saved, and not realizing that we actually have been sent. That there's not just a crucifixion, there's a resurrection. There's not just death to an old life, there's a new life to live. The thing about it is, I've found that it's just as easy to be religious as it is to be pagan. It's just as easy to make a list of things of what to do or not do as there is to not have a list at all. I think the hard part is to, I say hard as in a rewarding difficulty and a rewarding tension of being in relationship with Jesus. Where instead of making a list of every scenario and a formula to figure out every decision, I'm spending time with Jesus, talking with Jesus, thinking about Jesus, asking Jesus, what would you have me do? I need your help here, Jesus. That is the tension of relationship, and that's why we avoid and go to religion or irreligion. But they return, and the door is shut. The procession has already passed, and the ceremony's begun, and they are not included, and they hope this must be some mistake. So they knock on the door. The groom answers, and he speaks some of the most um, fearful and yet, I think, common words that we'll hear in the end. He's going to speak these words to all who are unprepared in that they are very religious, but they do not know Jesus. He says, I don't know you. And he's like, whoa, whoa, we were just with your bride. We've been with your bride for, for this whole time. We talked about Jesus. We love Jesus. We've been waiting for the groom this whole time. What do you, what do you mean you don't know us? Look at us. 
Don't we look like bridesmaids? Look at the dress. I'm dressed like a bridesmaid. I'm talking like a... I got the makeup like a bridesmaid. And it's the same thing from Matthew 7, right? People come before Jesus in the end, He says, and they'll say, Lord, Lord, same words. Lord, Lord, don't you know us? Lord, Lord, we did many works in Your name. We, we preach Jesus all the time. We love him. He's like, I never knew You. Not, oh, I knew You. I forgot. Oh, you forgot. It was, I never knew you. Translated, I don't care how much time you spent in the church doing religious things, you were never saved. Why you did those things? There's lots of different reasons people will be part of a church. There's lots of different reasons people will profess Jesus. But he says, I never knew you. Those who sit and waste their time remaining unprepared and doing nothing are not rejected for not doing enough. They're rejected for never knowing the Master to begin with. With the fool, there is only today and tomorrow. I'll worship what I want today and I'll worship God tomorrow. And with the wise, it could be said that there's only yesterday and today. I used to worship everything but God. But today, I will worship God in and through everything. And in terms of readiness, that's really what we're talking about. Worship. You go, what? Worship? I thought we had to do stuff. Worship is what we're talking about. Being ready is not about doing enough or more things, but believing the right things that actually leads to doing. There's a reason why I think Jesus um, uses lamps and oil as an image for waiting. The Mount of Olives that he's teaching on is uh, named that for the um, olive groves that, that cover the mountain, but also at that time the presses that were at the bottom of the mountain. The Garden of Gethsemane actually literally means press of oil. If you read the Old Testament, you'll see that the oil was always used um, at significant times. It was literally and figuratively a symbol of God's provision, of God's healing, of God's anointing. Uh, it was used as the first fruit offerings uh, at the temple and an important part of temple worship. The temple was divided in different spots and right before the Holy of Holies where the presence of God would meet the high priest, there was the holy place, and in the holy place there was a lamp, and that lamp was called the lamp of the tabernacle. It had seven stems coming off it. They're all lit with olive oil. And you probably know it's menorah type of uh, symbol. And the lampstand lit the holy place, and the holy place is where the priest would enter to prepare to go into the holy of holies, where God would be worshipped and sins would be atoned for. And this is the place that Jesus Himself, who said, I'm the light, right? He goes into the holy place. And Hebrews talks about this detail, how all this detail pointed to Jesus. And, and it says that, that Christ entered not into holy places made with hands, which were copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer Himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not His own, for then you would have to had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. 
And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time. It's just talking about this holy place, this place of worship. It starts talking about the second coming. It says, He will appear a second time not to deal with sin, because that was already dealt with on the cross, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for Him. Those who are eagerly waiting for Him are those who are God's people. Someone who is saved by grace is eagerly waiting for Jesus. They are wise. They are not fools. They are prepared because they are worshiping. They're worshiping Jesus in, for, and through everything. We wait for Jesus by watching, but we watch for Jesus by worshiping. What does that even mean? Here's what I think he means in the simplest terms. We use everything that is secondary. Now what is secondary? Anything. Marriage, family, job, your vacation. These things are used to point to, display, if you will, that which is primary. All these secondary things are used to display that which is primary. In other words, you worship in your... Your marriage is a gift to make much of God. Your children are a gift to make much of God. Your job is a gift to make much of God. Your vacation... I can worship through my vacation? Yes, if 1 Corinthians 10.31 is clear, it says whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. So that implies that when you eat or drink or whatever you do, which includes everything, big junk drawer... You can do it in such a way to not bring glory to God or not worship Him. And so it is our goal, therefore, the distinguishing characteristic of someone who's ready for Jesus is that they see everything as a means to worship Him until He returns. And we worship Him by bringing Jesus into everything, pointing every eye to Jesus and talking about Jesus. We begin to behold and think about the One who knows who we truly are and loves us. We think about the one who died the death I earned, but gives me the perfect life that I never could. We think about the one who forgives every sin, removes all my sin, forgets every sin, the only one who really knows every sin. Who wouldn't want that person to come and experience the full-on intimate, direct, all-comprehensive love of the One who truly knows you. The One who sees me as His child, unconditionally, irrevocably. The One who by His Spirit is patiently and slowly helping me look and think and speak and act more like Christ. I'm ready for His return by, guess what? Remembering His love as I worship through everything. How I use my time, how I use my money, how I shepherd my family, how I engage my... I worship, I remember His love and that changes everything. I share His love, I proclaim His love, and I expect His love to return. We do basically more than just identify ourselves as bridemaids. Hey, I'm a Christian! Great! Seems like everyone is these days. But the distinguishing characteristic of a true Christian 
is one who lives out who they truly are in Christ by, as Romans 12 says, presenting our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is our spiritual worship. We worship. As we close, please think of this. If you think of nothing, if you remember nothing, if you dismiss everything, be certain of this. Jesus is returning. And He is not fooled by our religiosity. We might fool everyone else, but He is not fooled and He doesn't really care. Just because we follow rules doesn't mean you love Him. But those who truly love Jesus truly understand the love that He has for us. And you anticipate with great joy meeting the Lord that loves you so much. And guess what? Because of His love, you don't waste a minute. You don't waste a minute on the irreligion and the indulgence of the world because guess what? It cannot satisfy and it doesn't compare with the weight of glory waiting for us. And you don't waste a minute on a bunch of religious crap because it doesn't do anything. You spend your time worshiping and beholding the One who saved us and loved us. We are given a very short amount of time here. And most of us take it for granted believing we have tomorrow. But God's chosen don't. They're not fools and they wisely watch for the day and until that time, they spend their time Worshiping with the bride, loving the bride, serving the bride, making her more beautiful that the groom might be pleased with our attention and care for His glory. And the bride is, guess what? Church. Our brothers and sisters in Christ. Don't waste your time or your life. Spend it all Risk it all for the one who already risked it all and spent it all for you. As a wise servant who knows, like Noah, why you're here and where you're going. Don't be like the world. like "Ah." We are the people who know why we're here and what is most important in this life. And we will live for the glory of Jesus who is returning. Let's pray. Father God, we thank You for Your grace and Your patience with us. We are a people who are forgetful. We are people who believe that this world is all there is. We are a people that is easily distracted by so many things that take us away from You, whether they be religious things or irreligious things. So I pray You will keep the return of Your Son, Jesus Christ, in the forefront of our mind that You will use that as as a motivation and inspiration, knowing all that Jesus has done to save us, Father. Help us to live for Him and for His glory. Do not let us waste our time. Do not let us waste the gifts and the talents and the treasure that You've given us, but let us use those to make much of You wherever we go and with whoever we're with. Lord Jesus, please return quickly that You might restore Your Lordship fully, remove sin and the vestiges of death that are left here so that we can truly enjoy Your presence free of all of that. 
It is in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.